the amount of edge density within a doe's home range um, was possibly related to the doe home range size. So the more edge there was indirectly increased fawn survival. And edges in this case were anything between two different cover types or even timber tracks. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and we have a uh, man, a super interesting show lined up for you today. We'll be talking with Mike Muthersbaugh and Alex Jensen, who are both researchers and PhD candidates at Clemson University, and they've been working on a large-scale research project in South Carolina uh, looking at coyotes and fawn predation and, and doe behavior related to fawns and coyotes, just a, a lot of really cool stuff. And uh, I get to kind of do a deep dive into what they've learned along the way, including what doe and fawn behavior leads to increased risk of predation, uh, what habitat characteristics improve fawn survival, uh, as well as a favorite summer coyote food source besides fawns that may surprise you. So be sure to, to stick around for all that. Uh, before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by a longtime supporter, but new NDA sponsor, The Bearded Buck. Uh, the Bearded Buck is an outdoor entertainment company, as well as an outdoor lifestyle brand uh, located in western Pennsylvania and started by our good friend Jerry Tibbet and his son Austin. So be sure to check out their videos and the merchandise that those guys have available at thebeardedbuck.com. We have a few things going on right now at NDA that I want to make you aware of. Uh, first, we just launched our 2023 NDA online auction. We have a, a just a ton of great hunts from Midwest deer hunts to turkey hunts, uh, a red stag hunt in Spain, uh, fishing trips, vacations. We have a NASCAR driving experience and, and just a whole lot more. Uh, and bidding just started on that this week, the week of April 17th. So be sure to check out all the items and, and start bidding on those today. All the proceeds from that will help keep NDA working for Whitetails in 2023 and beyond. And you can check all that out at DeerAssociation.com slash auction. Uh, we're also doing another free giveaway this month. Uh, this time we'll be giving away a Yeti Roadie 24 cooler and your choice of navy blue or charcoal gray. It's again, it's completely free to enter. All you got to do is head over to deerassociation.com slash Yeti 24 and get signed up. Uh, we'll draw a winner for that at the end of April. And one more thing before we get on the phone with Mike and Alex, uh, the NDA is hiring. So if you've always dreamed of working in the field of wildlife conservation, uh, we have two regional director positions as well as a deer outreach specialist position open right now and uh, the two regional director positions are for the midwest and the southeast both of those will work closely with our volunteer-led branches to help plan and implement successful fundraising and, and mission-related events to help drive the mission of the national deer association uh, the deer outreach specialist position is for northern missouri uh, and that position will assist the De missouri department of conservation in educating landowners with the facilitation of the deer management assistant program in the northern half of the state. So if any of those positions sound like something you'd be interested in, 
Head over to DeerAssociation.com slash employment to learn more. And with that, guys, we're going to jump on the phone with Mike Muthersbaugh and Alex Jensen to talk about fawns and coyotes. Hey, Alex and Mike, welcome to the show. I appreciate you guys taking time out of your schedule to come on here and talk to us a little bit about uh, fawn recruitment and predation and uh, just some some coyote biology stuff, some some really interesting stuff. And uh, yeah, looking forward to our uh, our discussion. Yeah, of course. Well, before we dive into the research, I want to have uh, each of you tell a little bit about yourself. And Mike, I'll let you kind of kick things off. I'm Mike Muthersbaugh. I'm a researcher with Clemson University, um, and I've been studying how deer respond to coyotes and with a particular emphasis on trying to figure out why some fawns get killed by coyotes and others don't. And uh, I grew up in upstate New York. I since moved around, bounced around to the southeast, Georgia, Virginia, ended up at Clemson studying the deer. Um, So I've been working with wildlife for a long time, and I love researching them. And and I also love deer hunting. Good deal. What about you, Alex? Yeah, it's great to be here, Brian. Um, Mike and I are both finishing up our PhD in you know, our last semester here, um, and now on the coyote side of this big project. So, um, and it's a, it's been a pleasure. But I, um, I grew up on the other side of the country uh, in California um, on a on a ranch. So I think that's really where you know my interest in animals and animal behavior really started was just being out in nature. Um, I didn't grow up hunting and fishing, so that's maybe a little bit different than a lot of the folks you have on the show. Um, I did my undergrad in Santa, at UC Santa Barbara in zoology. Um, that's really where I got my first experiences in the field, um, you know, getting my hands dirty and, and doing science. And then did my master's just up the road in California there at Cal Poly, where I looked at um, wildlife crossing a highway and seeing if we can reduce roadkill. And that's where I really fell in love with science and so I, had to, I was ready to try something new, so I moved to Clemson, and uh, you know I really love doing science that's really applied, and so that's why I really enjoyed this this project working on coyotes and understanding their interactions with deer. Well, good deal. Yeah, I'm excited to have you guys on here, and uh, yeah, looking looking forward to to hearing about everything you guys have been into. Now, you know, we brought you on because you've presented, I think, a couple times now at the the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting. Um, on on various topics surrounding you know fawns and coyotes and predation and uh, now have all these talks kind of been based on one big study or, or are these coming from from multiple sites and, and different research projects? Yeah, so uh, I'll speak to that a little bit. Again, I'm Mike, and uh, yeah, this was one kind of one big umbrella project. They were on different grants, the coyote and the deer portion, but uh, still uh, supposed to be in cahoots and working together to get as much data as possible into predator-prey interactions, specifically deer and coyotes. And uh, yeah, I mean, the project kind of came around in large part because deer populations in South Carolina kind of peaked in the 90s, 1990s, um, but then declined over the last two and a half decades. And now habitat was changing pretty rapidly over those last two and a half decades. Um, and doe bag limits were also pretty liberal and they still are pretty liberal, liberal, a lot of part of the States. And, uh, but that decline was concurrent with coyote establishment. And since the 2010s or so, other studies have found low fawn recruitment rates in the Southeast, really across the Southeast in large part due to coyote predation. 
So the state wanted to know, you know, could this, you know, does this vary locally? But also, you know, the factors that influence fawn survival are still kind of unclear. So got to start there. And managers are always looking for more tools to manipulate populations. So in addition to reducing doe harvest, for example, it'd be great to identify ways to increase fawn survival. I'll let Alex interject here with anything else. Yeah, I think, I mean, just the thing that people should know, I mean, many many of your listeners might know this, but coyotes are, you know, relatively new to the Southeast, right? I mean, the the first coyote was in South Carolina in 1978. And, you know, so it's really, there's been quite a bit of research in the last 10 to 15 years, but there's still things we're learning. Um, And, you know, coyotes have been on really on the coast for the last 10 to 15 years, right? So this is still a kind of a novel top predator in the system. And I think that's kind of the, the, the big picture. And, uh, yeah, like Mike said, we're still trying to figure out how do we, coyotes seem to be here to stay. So how do we coexist? And, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, like you referenced there, I know there's, there's been a lot of studies done here in recent years, you know, mm-hmm. looking at predation and, and what kind of impacts coyotes and other predators are, are having on fawn recruitment. But it sounds like you guys are kind of uh, taking that next step or, or diving a little deeper into, you know, why I guess certain fawns survive versus others that don't. Is that is that kind of the the gist of it? Yeah, I would say I, I was I was extremely interested in in not only figuring out you know why some fawns die and others don't, but just kind of characterizing and examining doe fawn mother mother young behavior in white-tailed deer because, well, as everybody probably listening knows, they're, they're pretty hard to observe unless you get lucky and, or you live in the suburbs maybe, and you have a doe with her fawn bedded in your backyard. Maybe you get to watch them together, but um, studying them, in a free ranging population, studying those behaviors can be pretty challenging. So that, that was, that was another thing I was really curious about was just kind of examining it and characterizing that behavior. Um, but then figuring out, do those behaviors translate? Do they impact fawn survival, which no one's really ever been able to examine before? Yeah. But before we dive into some of those um, behaviors and, 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 you know, interaction between, between doves and fawns, I guess first, can you kind of give us a, a walkthrough or how did you guys set this up? I mean, how did you, how were you able to track these behaviors? I guess is what I'm trying to to say, can you kind of give us an idea of how this this study was set up? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll back up even a little further there. So, um, so we needed. Well, we we kind of hoped for a large tract of land that we could use as a study area, so that both Alex and myself could catch coyotes and deer in the same spot. Hopefully, with a lot of overlap uh, to really get the most bang for a buck. Um, for <laughs> pun intended, for for studying these deer and, um, and deer coyote relationships. And so we, we, we chose to study deer and coyote on a big tract of private land in the Piedmont of South Carolina, um, where, you know, we had access to the whole uh, roughly 15,000 acres. Um, and so from my side of the project from January up until when baiting had to stop because turkey season was coming in, uh, we tried in about March. We had corn on the ground trying to catch adult does. We would rocket net them or use tranquilizer darts from tree stands, catch the does. And then we collared them with a GPS collar. 
and we implanted them with a birthing transmitter or a vaginal implant transmitter that was supposed to, is designed to come out uh, when she's giving birth. So right, you know, in the birth bed, that should pop out and alert us that there was a birth. And we could go catch her fawns then a couple hours after the birth event and put collars on the fawns um, and then track all three if there were twins or just maybe mother mother fawn pairs around the woods. Okay. Just just curious, and, and we'll get more into the, the predation side of it, you know, as we go on. But I, I am just curious, since you were talking about that, how many times did you get there um, after after getting that, that signal and the fawn had already been predated? Uh, unclear. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, because I, I say that because I don't think often. Um, I don't think I never I never I, we never found evidence of predation occurring. Um, but there were many instances where you get there because of late birth alerts. The technology, while awesome, is not perfect. Uh, I might get an alert six hours after the birth event, sometimes much later. Um, so by that point, about four hours after birth, maybe six hours, the doe has already moved the fawn. So you show up, you might find a birth bed where she's clearly been rolling around in labor. Um, but there's no fawns, but also no doe <laughs> around. So, um, okay. so a lot of times, you know, you show up and nobody's there and then you have to start searching around to try to find the fawns. And sometimes you don't, and maybe, yeah, it's possible that a predator already picked them off in the first couple of hours of life and ran off with them. But, uh, I never found any field evidence like that. Okay. Yeah, I gotcha. Now, I guess during this time period when, when you're monitoring these, these transmitters, these, these pregnant does, I mean, are y'all basically like, you know, on 24 seven call or, or you just have to get out there when you can get out there once, once you're notified. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when the technology worked perfectly, we had transmitters and, and, and GPS collars that s- transmitted through satellites. Um, and it, if it worked perfectly, I'd get a little text and an email notification to my phone and wake me up at, uh, you know, 3 a.m., whatever, whatever yeah. time it was of the day. Um, and then, you know, you try to figure, you load, load the points and try to figure out when she actually, when the, the birthing transmitter actually came out of her body. And then you try to give them, you know, three, four hours uh, so they can, so she can clean her fawns up and, uh, and they can bond before you go in there and bust up the whole deal. Um, and uh, yeah, so you're, you're on call and, and, and it, because the technology didn't work perfectly, uh, I started having everybody do, uh, we would, we had somebody out, out there listening to each of the does every eight hours. So three times a day, sometimes more just to try to detect birth events a little earlier. Definitely sounds like it was, um, labor intensive. <laughs> no, yes. uh, no pun intended, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, w- w- I guess what, uh, as you, as you collared these deer and, and then I guess were you collaring the fawns once you located them yep. as well? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, Hope in a perfect world, a perfect birth would go something like this. I get a, a text on my phone and it says, 
birth triggered by light and temperature, which meant that the the birthing transmitter was out of the body cavity, out of the dough, and she probably has fawns on the ground already. I figure out, oh, it happened two hours ago. We've got an hour. Let's wait at least an hour before we head to the woods. And then four hours after we think the birth happened, which was usually the birthing transmitter came out, we we track straight to the doe, um, and hopefully she's still laying there. Um, you try to be, you know, quiet as you can, <laughs> bushwhacking in there. And uh, usually you jump the doe. She might wait until you're 10 yards away. And, uh, and if you're lucky, then there was two, one or two fawns laying there in the birth bed still, um, all cleaned up, dried off, um, but she hadn't moved them yet. And then, yeah, we, we put GPS collars on the fawns as well, which is one of the really novel things about this study is that we had GPS collars on the fawns and I set both the doe and the fawn collars to take fixes every half hour at the same time. So we could study how they're interacting with each other and, and moving around the landscape at a really fine scale. Okay. And what, I guess what, um, going in where that once you had these, these deer GPS collared, was there certain behaviors you were specifically looking for or monitoring from the start? I mean, what, what, I guess, what were you looking for in behavior between the, the doe and the fawn? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the big thing is just visitation. So a lot of great old observational studies have been done kind of like in Texas or in other other places where you can actually watch, <laughs> watch deer in a little more open habitat, but in, you know, a clear cut of South Carolina, that's not really possible. So I wanted those high fixed rates. So every 30 minutes, so that way I could try to figure out when was the doe visiting a fawn, but not only how many times a day, but what time of day was that visit or those visits at? So no one's really been able to do, to look at visitation generally. And then again, go on to look at how visitation timing, visitation rates, how often they do it. Does that impact fawn survival? So that was one thing we were interested in. Okay. And there were other, other things too. Like, you know, we looked at just the doe home range when she had fawns, how, you know, how much space was she using, how far she would go on average. Yeah. We, we derived a lot from that GPS data. And I guess what were some of the kind of common themes of, of behavior that you saw with these does and fawns and well, let's, let's just start there and then we'll get into, you know, what behaviors led to higher fawn survival, but but just kind of in general, I guess, what were some of those common common behaviors that you witnessed between these does and fawns across, you know, I, I guess how many total deer were, were you looking at here, total does and um, fawns? So we, we were able to catch 93 fawns total, but only 83. We caught 10 opportunistic fawns, so they didn't have a mother with a GPS collar. So 83, 83 with... GPS collars that also had a mother with a GPS collar. Um, and that was from, that was from, I think, I believe it was uh, 56 does, individual does. So, you know, quite, quite a few of those were twin, twin pairs. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, pretty typical high birth rates, close to two 
you know, the, your average doe when we knew we were on the, we, when we were at the birth site on time, um, birth rates were close to two, I think 1.8 and, uh, or so. And, um, so most does are given birth to twins. It looked like average birth date across the three years was May 17th, but in South Carolina, it's a pretty long fawning season. I believe the earliest birth we ever saw was April 7th. And the latest was, I want to say, I'd have to look back, but July, July 8th, I think was the max. Okay. And, and uh, I mean, I could, I could list off a whole bunch of numbers about the actual behaviors, what? but. Yeah. And, and you don't have to get like super specific here with, but I'm just thinking, you know, on, on average, you know, how often were these does visiting their fawns? You know, how long would they hang out with their fawns and was it more daytime versus night? You know, just some, some right. gener- generalities. Yeah, for sure. No, they were definitely uh diurnal. So does almost always on, on average, they were definitely visiting during the day. So the average, the average nighttime visit rate was across all font doe fawn pairs was was thirty four around thirty percent something like that um so pretty much seventy percent of the visits are during the day we had camera grids out passive camera grids so they didn't have beta of them and that that definitely corroborates that evidence where does pretty much only visit their fawns during the day and doe home home ranges were pretty typical of what you'd expect and in terms of acreage and median distance per day they they go over 100 meters i'd say on average from their phones like so they're so they're ranging a good ways away and they visit probably little maybe on average under under two visits per day that was non-consecutive visits so like they might spend some of those visits anecdotally speaking here some of those visits lasted a while where their points were like right on top of each other for a whole hour but in terms of like numbers of visits i'd say about two per day on average is what i saw i defined a visit when as when a doe and a fawn their gps points were under 50 meters apart and if the fawn was active for more than a minute so um, I think, you know, she could have been coming or going when that GPS point was taken. Um, so the fawn activity that we get off the collars as well, um, I could c- calculate that in minutes and figure out, all right, if it was active for more than a minute, there's a, there's a really good chance that the doe was actually there because like 90% of the fawn's activity was when they were visiting with their, their doe. Yeah, yeah the that makes sense. Otherwise, they're just lying there. Right. Hiding. Yep. 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 They're just hiders. What, what What was some of the, and again, this don't have to be exact, but I'm curious, what was some of the, I guess, further distances that, that you saw a doe, you know, leave her fawn or travel from her fawn? Yeah, that's an interesting one because some of them did uh, just a handful of does I can remember did a really long excursion, I guess I'll call it like thousand meters i want to say so like a kilometer okay, wow yeah. Like, yeah like really random and i and i you know some people might say well that could have been the gps error but you know she did that over maybe two hours and then went straight back um st- straight back to her home range and her the area where her fawn was hiding 
I don't know what happened there and, you know, why she chose to run <laughs> pretty rapidly in those, in those instances. And, and I think, I suspect, you know, she's being chased by a predator or scared off. And I don't think it was humans, but it could have been, you know, because this was a pretty, this, our study area is pretty devoid of humans except for us. <laughs> uh, it was a very rural, very low human population density. Um, so I don't think it was our activities that scared her off because, you know, we you, often you can see the doe. <laughs> She'll run off and, and just stare back at you. Right. Well, this this definitely, that data definitely reinforces, you know, what we often tell people who, you know, during that spring season, you'll have them calling. I used to work for the DNR here in Georgia and you'd, you'd always get the calls. You know, I found this, quote, abandoned fawn hmm. that, you know, the mother's left behind. Yeah. And of course, we, you know, we'd always tell them, you know, she's, look, that's that's normal. She'll leave them for for periods of time. And it definitely sounds like your your study uh, just confirms that, that that, you know, there's plenty, lots of time when when the doe is not with their fawn. Yeah. Yeah. She if they're you know, they're only visiting two, twice a day, then uh, and, you know, that that ranges too. you know, some days it looked like they visited four times. Right. Right. And it worse, or maybe even more, but, uh, but yeah, by and large, they're just, they're dropping them off somewhere. Generally the fawn goes and hides and then she continues to eat pretty much constantly. It seems like to, yeah. to try to make up for her lost body condition as she's nursing constantly. Yeah. And I guess how often are they moving their fawns around or are they just kind of leaving them in one spot and visiting as needed or do they, you know, kind of, do they move these fawns around within their home range or what did you see there? I didn't really study how much the fawn moved, like the fawn specifically, but I can speak to that anecdotally and just say that there were, there are pretty tight home ranges, the fawn themselves. So once they kind of got set up after the initial maybe day, so after, after she moves them, sometimes really far in a, the first day or two of life, the fawns will follow that doe and they'll, they'll go a couple hundred meters from where they were born. And then they find a little hidey hole and, and they were usually pretty, uh, pretty high sight fidelity to that particular area, the fawn themselves. But they were outliers too, you know, that would the fawns would bounce around a lot more than I thought they would. <laughs> so I guess, you know, what starting to speak to what you were actually looking for, what, what were some of those characteristics or behaviors uh, of does that, that I guess led to, you know, a higher survivability of fawns? What, what were the, what were the behaviors that, that, that you saw that were fawns were more likely to survive versus the riskier behaviors were, you know, they weren't so fortunate. Yeah. Um, so I, I did uh, Cox proportional hazards modeling really to try to keep it comparable to other studies and uh, found that a couple of maternal behaviors or characteristics influence fawn survival. And of note, I would mention the doe core home range. So that's, that's her, her core home range where she, she spends almost all of her time in activity, the doe. Um, as that got bigger, so as those, as her home range got bigger, her fawns had a better chance of survival. And I think what's happening is kind of maternal diffusion hypothesis 
that we've come up with where the more a doe spreads out her activity, the less attention she's drawing to her specific hiding spot for her fawns or her fawn, whether she has one or two. So it seemed like as, you know, as she's spreading out her activity, her, her home range is getting larger. Potentially that's what's, you know, coyotes might be keying in on does. And then if they're spreading out their activity, it might be harder for a coyote to locate the fawn hiding spot. And then if a doe visits their fawn more at night, so those doe fawn pairs that had higher night visitation instead of during the daytime, it seemed like that increased risk. So if you visit your fawn at night, if you're doe and you visit your fawn at night, you are not doing your fawn any favors. And our study site, pretty common coyote activity behavior in that they're almost entirely nocturnal. Yes, they're active during the day sometimes, but pretty nocturnal. So that's when they're going to run into a fawn that's on its on its feet. So if you visit at night, you're probably risking, you know, that fawn being spotted a little more easily. And then the the visitation generally. So if they visited their fawn a lot, if does visited their fawn a lot in areas where there was more coyote activity like across the whole season, they were more likely to die also those fawns. So it was kind of these these two things interacted to reduce fawn survival. In that, if you visit a lot, the more, your fawn's more active, more on its feet. And so, what we think is happening is the more active the fawn is, the more conspicuous it is. Um, and that's how I think coyotes are finding these fawns. And I think it'd be a great time to to bring in maybe what Alex was. Uh, you can expand on, on what they're doing when they're hunting fawns and what they're doing right before they find a fawn. Um, but I think what's happening is that the fawns that are more active are more conspicuous, just more noticeable to these coyotes who are just cruising around the landscape. So, yeah. Okay. So the best moms, I guess, are the ones that, that have the, the bigger home range. They're themselves moving around more within their home range and they're only Minimally, I guess, visiting their fawns and, and not doing so at night. Is that kind of? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that interaction is a weird one. But yeah, because it seems like the, you, the more you visit fawns, it's probably a good thing. You know, that probably goes back to just giving them more nutrition, <laughs> giving them more milk. But when you have coyotes around, it becomes riskier. And I think it's because, you know, they're, they're making their fawns more active. Um, and if coyotes can key in on does, which has been suggested before us, then maybe the coyote spots a doe and and then, you know, pursues that doe and there's the fawn right there um, during a visit, let's say. Yeah. Now, you, you may not have looked at this and, and that's fine, but in the does, I guess, that exhibited the better maternal behavior, for, for lack of a better term, did was there any factors there as far as like age or or did you look at the age of the does and no you know, i didn't I, I didn't other than that they were as far as we could tell all adult in that they were not yearlings because when they were when they were yearlings and they hadn't had fawns before um i couldn't fit the birthing transmitter in them um which was unfortunate because a lot of yearlings are pregnant and i i knew that but just couldn't fit the birthing transmitter in so I didn't collar those those younger does um, so they're all generally mature does, um, at, at least they were adult. 
those, but that's all I can speak to about age and, and actual characteristics. I did not test how their body weight at capture influences those behaviors, but it, it's worth looking into in the future for sure. I just, you know, I caught most of them in January and, and February and a lot can change in their body condition. Right. Right. Yeah. Before fawning season. So on, on the coyote side of things, where did you guys capture and collar coyotes as well to, to study their activities within this area? Yeah, we did. Yeah, Mike, I mean, explained kind of the, the deer capture process and then we captured coyotes for during three for three years and uh, mostly in January and February. Um, you know, drive along dirt roads, look for sign um, like scat and tracks and set footholds. And yeah, we ultimately captured 72 coyotes over that time period. And, you know, you know some of the questions, um, you know, Mike was interested in as far as what, the, what space are they using? You know, the, we're also interested in that with coyotes, um, but specifically kind of how, how does that relate to, you know, fawn activity and, and fawn availability? And to kind of jump on what Mike was hinting at early, a little bit earlier, you know, it's, it's actually really special that we have GPS data on the predator and the prey in this system. That's really, really rare. And that's something we're really excited about. And so what I had Mike do is, hey, Mike, send me all your fawns that were killed by coyotes. And I plot those, you know, on, on a map. And then I'll plot all my coyote points on that same map and see, hey, are there any collared coyotes nearby? So we're basically trying to link up um, cases where a collared fawn was killed by a collared coyote. Um, and we actually did find five cases where we're pretty confident that we see a, you know, during this kind of three or four hour window when Mike thinks the fawn died, there was a collared coyote right there. And so we did side, kind of find the signature, which aligns with kind of Mike's um, hypothesis, which is that coyotes are moving relatively fast across the landscape, traveling relatively fast um, prior to encountering a fawn. And then they're actually at that kill site for not that long, maybe 30 minutes to an hour. And then they take that fawn back to what I call like a coyote home site. So like maybe a den or maybe kind of a, an area where the, the yearlings that the pups are, are there hanging out, um, carry that fawn back to share with the rest of its mates. And so, you know, Mike's theory that, um, that the, the doe activity or fawn activity being more active really makes a lot of sense because coyotes are moving across the landscape. They're going to be more likely to encounter or, or you know, detect a fawn if it's up, up and about. Um, and, you know, maybe keying on, on the doe's movement too. And so, yeah, we're really excited about kind of having these, these cases, you know, even though it's a relatively small sample size, kind of looking at, um, you know, we know that coyotes do kill fawns, but this is kind of the first look at how they're doing that. How are they finding fawns on the landscape? Yeah. Well, I got, first I got to ask, how were you able to uh, trap all those coyotes? What, what method were you using there? Cause I know I've done a little bit of, of trapping not not live trapping, but you know trapping for coyotes, and and I know it can be tough. So I'm just curious how you how you live trapped them to get these yeah. collars on. Yeah, um, you know, first of all, we hired a professional uh, who's been trapping for thirty or forty years. Is um, a guy named Rusty Johnson, and um, he was a you know fantastic, and you know, I learned just as much from about coyotes from him as I did from reading lots of papers. But yeah, basically we would drive along dirt roads, look for sign, like I mentioned, scat or, or tracks. And then, you know, we'd find a good, a good spot and we'd drill holes and put bait in those holes. And, 
set foothold traps. So these are, you know, traps that, you know, there's a, there's a pressurized pad, you bury them just under the soil. And if you're trying to guide the coyote's foot right on that pad using that bait, and if the coyote steps on that pad, you know, the, 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 the jaws come up, climb around the coyote's foot. And, you know, over a, a given day, we can set, we can set probably 30 traps or so. And so after a few days, we've got what we call a trap line out where we have, you know, 50 to 70 traps out along these dirt roads in our study area. And we're checking those traps every single day. And so it's kind of a, it's an emotional roller coaster kind of because you go around the corner, you're hoping to see a coyote, you know, and some days you go around every corner and there's, you haven't caught anything, right? And that can happen for several days at a time that gets, it gets depressing. But then the other days, you know, Mike remembers this one day that we caught 10 in one day, Mike, was that, yeah, it was the day I had to leave in the, you, you finished up for me. Is that right? Yeah, that was, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's highs and lows, but um, yeah, overall, we were really happy with kind of the number of coyotes we caught, but that's the general process is, you know, hire a professional, set out these foothold traps and then check those traps every day. And, uh, you know, as far as the processing, you know, we use a, you know, it's easier to remove a coyote you can just shoot it in the trap. But for us, we have a catch pole. And so it's just a pole with a noose around the end and we pin the coyote down. Um, and then once you do that, they get pretty submissive, kind of like a dog. You know, they can kind of tell that you're the dominant animal in that case. And we tape up their, their legs with electrical tape and tape up their mouth um, with electrical tape as well. I and mean, we don't sedate them, um, which is a little bit surprising to me, but that's just, that's the, that's the protocol. And then uh, put the GPS collar on and kind of the whole process of handling them only takes about 20, 25 minutes. Take measurements, we draw blood, take a little genetic sample. And yeah, so that's kind of the, the process. Yeah. And generalities. And I guess what we're, you, you've talked about some of these kind of in, in general, but what were some specific questions that you were trying to answer with your part of it, with the coyote part of it? Yeah, I think the, the two kind of things most relevant to, you know, deer hunters would be the question of, you know, coyotes do seem to eat a lot of fawns, but we really have no idea of what proportion of the population is eating fawns. You know, are they all eating fawns? Are there some kind of, you know, dominant male, for example, that's a really good fawn predator, right? And kind of these are disproportionately contributing to fawn predation. So that was the, the one question. That was one of the questions we were interested in. And the other big one is um, this question of can other foods, alternative foods, potentially reduce predation on fawns? So we can kind of distract coyotes, you might say, with, um, you know, in, in our study site, it was blackberries. And so we looked at whether or not blackberries could potentially reduce um, fawn predation by tracking coyote diets um, throughout the summer. Those are kind of the two main questions we were interested in. And on that first one, what, what did you find? Are, are, all, are they all eating fawns or is it just a yeah. portion of the population? Yeah. The short answer is, yeah, it seems like they're all eating fawns. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, which would suggest that right, this, any kind of targeted removal of a, you know, quote unquote problem coyotes wouldn't be effective. We found that, um, yeah, nearly all coyotes in the populations that we, you know, the, the individuals that we collected scat samples for were eating fawns. And not only that, we found that male and female coyote diets, you can tell as a part using genetics, um, had really similar diets in the summer. So similar amount of deer, similar amount of small mammals and fruits and, um, and rabbits. So it really, what, what suggests is kind of in the, in the summertime when fawns are available, these fruits are available, you know, all 
coyotes do seem to be kind of acting similarly, right? At the, the population level, they're all kind of converging on the same strategy of, of looking for fawns and then you know, to some extent switching over to blackberries as well. Yeah. And did, were you just looking at their behavior during the fawning season or did you look at it for like year round? I'm just curious if, if they're like movements and, and hunting behavior changed during the fawning season, like if it was a visible, you know, change in their, their daily habits. Yeah, that's a great question. We did, you know, we kind of focused on the summer because that's kind of when, you know, fawns are available and most interested in, but we did want to compare that to other seasons. So the approach was we, we looked at the behavior in the winter um, with the behavior in the summer during fawning season. And then we looked at the behavior in the fall as well. So we kind of did this three season approach and we, yeah, we looked at their movement and we looked at their diet as well. Um, and, you know, in the, I think as far as their movement goes, I think one interesting thing is it did seem to be kind of shaped more by like risk from people than it, than it was by necessarily like food, or at least we, it was, we couldn't detect like a, like a strong signal that they're selecting certain habitat for, for fawns, you know, versus in the fall for persimmons or something like that. Um, but it did seem like in the, in the fall during the daytime, right. When a risk from being shot by a hunter is most is, is highest, they are avoiding open areas and they're avoiding developed areas. So they're avoiding kind of encountering people. And so that was kind of the, the, the GPS part, right? The, the, the habitat, the habitat use part and diet kind of the, the, the take homes are in the winter, they're really uh, carnivorous. So they eat almost, so most of their, almost all their diet is, is, is mammals. And actually the thing they eat the most is small mammals. So like cotton rats and, and deer mice and things like that. Um, they eat quite a bit of rabbits as well. And then deer as well. Um, and then in the summer, they switch pretty heavily to, like I mentioned, fawns and blackberries, about 60% of their diet in the summer, those two foods. And that's really interesting because those foods are really temporarily available, right? Fawns are only available for this, you know, two or three months out of the year. Blackberries are available for about a month. And so coyotes are kind of heavily switching to these temporary foods. And in the fall, there's kind of a similar pattern where there's, they're actually switched to persimmons. Um, I think 40% of their diet or so in the fall was persimmons. Um, which, you know, you, if you walked on a dirt road in a rural area, you've seen persimmon seeds on the, on the, on the ground. Oh, yeah. um, and, and then a lot of actually the second biggest thing in the fall is deer. Um, and there's a little, it, you know, it's really hard to tell sometimes, at least the, the way we did it with just looking at their scat, right? We can't tell if a deer was predated or, or scavenged. Right. And so we suspect that in the winter and the fall that, quite a bit of the deer that they eat is, is scavenged, but it's a good, you know, they could also be predating um, or killing yearling fawns, you know, in, in the fall, even in that next winter as well. But it, right now we don't have the data to, to know. Right. So that's what we kind of focused on, on their predation effects on fawns in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of deer carcasses on the landscape during exactly. the, the fall and winter. So yeah, it would be, exactly. would be hard to distinguish there. Um, so, okay, I guess you said there, there's, uh, what, what was the percentage again, as far as deer in their diet in the, uh, the, well, the fawning season uh, versus fall? Yeah. And, and the fawning is, is pretty similar, actually. Uh, no, I'll, I'll take that back. So it's a little higher in the summer. So total deer in the summer was about, 
35% of their diet was deer. And of that, we can identify, we can say this is, this is fawn versus adult deer. Um, you know, of that kind of 35%, 26% of that is fawn. So almost all of the deer they're eating um, in the summer is fawns. And then in the, and then total in the fall is about 26% as well. So they're eating a little more deer in, in the, in the summer, but like I mentioned, it's, it's a, uh, it's primarily fawns. Okay. And so, you know, based, based on your study and what you've seen there, um, as far as for a, a deer hunter and, and land manager that might be listening, what's, is there any kind of practical takeaway from, from the study? Yeah, we, we think there could be, um, you know, it's probably a little early to kind of have a management recommendation. Um, but the, you know, what we found is that, you know, during the first half of fawning season, when, you know, you know so there's this peak of fawn of, of, in our study area of, in, you know, late May, early June, coyotes are hitting fawns pretty hard. And, you know, they're, we look at what they're eating every week and we looked at how many fawns are available using Mike's data during that week that they're matching kind of tracking that availability pretty closely. Um, and then as the decline in availability, right. As fawns are being born less and they're also dying, the, the availability of fawns on the landscape starts to go down, right. Starting in mid June and kind of trailing off towards in the, in the by mid July. Um, and so in that second half, we're seeing that there's this decline in availability, but then also there's this, there's this pulse of blackberry availability, um, which is about a month after the, 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 the peak fawn availability. And that does seem to reduce fawn consumption in coyote diets for about um, four to five weeks or so. And the, the implication, right, is that if we can potentially promote these fruits like blackberries or even wild cherries, um, wild plums, for example, and maybe in other study areas, the implication, right, is that potentially we can coyote, distract coyotes um, from fawns. Um, it's, it's a little hard to tell because, right, there's, like I mentioned that that pulse of a blackberry is happening at the same time that, that those fawns are declining. And so I think some kind of like experiment in the field would be really, really valuable um, uh, or that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. And so I think, you know, potentially, you know, promoting blackberries maybe through not spraying, right, could be the eventual recommendation. But again, kind of where we're at now, you know, it's kind of exciting that there's a potentially an indirect way to, to help, help fawns, right, without having to, do something, you know, really intensive habitat management, right? You can just promote blackberries. That'd be, that might help, but, but yeah, so that's kind of the, the takeaway. Okay. And I guess before, before I move on to this other part of, of your study that you guys looked at the, the, the pieball deer in the population, is there, and again, I don't know if y'all looked at this or not, but did, did you look at any differences in behavior um, between these does with fawns versus does without fawns in, in response to coyotes or, or was that a part of it? Yeah, I, I kind of, I used camera trapping data uh, from non-baited cameras. We had a really big array that Alex uh, designed and put together on the landscapes. So we had about 90 cameras at a one kilometer square grid uh, resolution or uh, spacing. And, uh, and so using those really detailed camera trapping data, which were, we had, I don't, Alex, I don't know how many millions of photos we ended up with, um, millions of photos. And I looked at deer responses, potential responses to 
coyotes during the uh, fawning season, so May and June mainly. Um, and <clears throat> it looked like does, when they were not with their fawns, they were actually... So they probably, a lot of these does probably did have fawns, but they were just not on camera at the same time um, for many photos. Those does are actually positively associated with daily coyote passes. So there were more, there was more doe activity the same days that there was more coyote activity. So maybe again, lending towards that hypothesis that coyotes are seeking out doe areas. Um, you know, we expected to see a negative <laughs> relationship where does and especially does with fawns would be avoiding areas, sites with more coyote use, um, with more coyote activity. Um, but we we found that positive relationship there. And we also found that does were more vigilant. They had their head up more at those sites where at sites where coyote like long term coyote encounter risk or long-term coyote activity over the whole season was greater. So if there was a site that had, let's say two coyote passes a day, which is quite, would be really high. Those does were more vigilant. They had their heads up. They were more alert at those sites compared to a site that maybe only had 0.1 coyote pass a day um, over the whole season. So, so that was, that was two other ways that looked like, you know, they were responding to coyote encountering the risk of encountering coyotes across landscape. Does that help answer that question? Yeah. 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 And that's, that's fascinating. I was just sitting here mulling it in my head. I mean, it, obviously they know those areas where coyotes are, are using it. Just, I'm just sitting here wondering in my head if, you know, if they're intentionally taking their fawn to an area that, uh, that they, that they don't recognize as, as a place coyotes travel and then purposely, you know, they're purposely traveling through the ones where, where coyotes are to, I don't know, to almost act as a distraction from their fawns. But to, yeah, to lure them away like yeah. a, well, yeah, like, like a lot of bird species will do that. Yeah. yeah I'm, I, and, you know, does can be defensive of their fawns. Actually, I, I never really had a doe come in while I was on a fawn birth, but Alex was on a fawn birth at night, I remember, and at least one, right, Alex, where, you know, she charges in, she's stomping around, she's, <laughs> she responds to the predator, which in this case was Alex helping to catch these phones for us. And so they can, they, they do that in, with coyotes too, as has been seen in the Midwest, they'll, you know, charge them down in some cases. Um, although, it, you know, it might not be effective. We don't really know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've seen, I've seen, you know, occasional, some trail camera photos where, where a deer was, you know, obviously posturing at a nearby yeah. coyote, but yeah, we we was, had a we had a couple of those too, where a doe is on camera and you know, she she probably has a fawn nearby, and um, the the problem I think is that uh, coyotes are a lot smarter, and they're like, okay, this is great, this means there's there's probably a fawn right around here, I just have to snoop it out, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, kind of shifting gears here, I know you guys did another presentation um, at the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting that's kind of a side note to the, to the fawn predation and coyote discussion, but I think it's, it's interesting enough to, to talk about in, in our conversation here. And, and that was you guys seemingly encountered a pretty high number or a high percentage of, of piebald fawns 
in your research. Is that, is that correct? Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we, uh, yeah, over the couple of years, we saw a lot more piebalds than we expected. And certainly, you know, more than is probably common in other populations. Um, and I say that because the other studies that have caught, in some cases, many more fawns than we did, did not, you know, observe so many piebalds that we saw. So um, it looks like it's, it's probably s- still kind of a localized genetic anomaly. But it might impact this population because, well, some some of those were stillborn fawns. They, you know, they probably just had internal abnormalities that didn't allow them to 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 survive from the get go. Um, and then we didn't have any of them <clears throat> that were noticeably piebald uh, that we knew were piebald at least, like had white markings, for example. Would none of those made it through the fawning season into August? So they they all died and. Uh, but it's pretty interesting that it can still persist, you know, with all them dying. But yeah. Now, um, was it I mean, was that reflected in the adult population? Did, do you see quite a few piebald adult deer or was yeah, it just showing up? OK, more than, you know, more than I've ever seen. Okay. <laughs> for sure. Um, we got, you know, we've got some, we caught some on camera since we had all those cameras out across the landscape. I, I saw them a couple of times, you know, in person. And we, we caught, I believe we only caught one adult piebald and she was too small to, to collar. Um, so, but she was, she barely had any piebald, you know, markings on her. So she appeared normal other than a little bit of white patches on her haunches. But, but yeah, there were definitely quite a few pictures of, of adults more than, more than you'd expect, I guess, in your average population. And, um, I was texting uh, a hunter was texting me cause we, we ear tagged that doe I just mentioned. And, uh, he was, he was texting me. He said, Hey, I, I got video of this, this doe. He sends a video of his doe of this doe from this last deer season. And he's in his hunting blind and, uh, she's standing there eating from his corn pile, his bait pile. And, uh, and he, he said he thought she had two fawns, one of which was a piebald one was not. And they made it to the fall season apparently this last year. And he also said they had in the teens individual piebalds. He said, "I want to say he said sixteen or something." Golly, who, who knows how many of those were the same deer? Right, right. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe he, you know, maybe he counted them all, and and there really were sixteen. But yeah, it seems like it's a prevalent trait, um, prevalent abnormal abnormality, really, in that population. Um, just interesting. I don't think it, you know, it, I don't think it really has bearing on the greater regional population, but, uh, but it was certainly weird to see and, and pretty cool to see too. Oh yeah. Yeah. But that's interesting that, so none of the ones though you've seen as fawns survived. Right. Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah. They were either, or they were either dead in the birth bed when we got there. Um, or they were, I think I think all of them, all the actual like outwardly piebald, the white ones, um, died by predation, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and we had we had two that were malformed, um, and I don't know if they were piebald because they didn't have white markings, but they they had other skeletal abnormalities, so they're like a shortened lower jaw, and maybe stumpy legs. Um, 
and they could have been piebald. They just didn't have the white fur. And those also, they, they, those two died as well. <laughs> so, cause they couldn't, they couldn't stand and do the normal long things. Yeah. Okay. Well guys, as, uh, as we kind of wrap things up here, are there any, any other parts of these studies or the overall study, I guess that we've, we've missed or that might be relevant to, to our listeners? Yeah, I think, uh, I had one thing I wanted to add. I, I, I should have kept going, but, uh, so when it comes to those maternal behaviors that I found were important for fawn survival. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I looked at things that might drive those, those behaviors. So what, what affects doe home range, what affects her core home range size while she has fawns, what affects their visitation rates and what affects proportion of visits tonight. And I think the most exciting thing that I found, which was, you know, to kind of piggyback off of Alex's, hey, maybe there's alternative foods that we could reduce some fawn predation. I think there's potentially opportunity to do other habitat management because I found that the amount of edge density within a doe's home range um, was possibly related to the doe home range size. So she had bigger home ranges in areas where there was more edge. Um, I don't know why that relationship, you know, why she had a larger area that she covered when there was more edge. Maybe they're like linear food features. So she was just traveling further. But the more edge there was indirectly increased fawn survival. And edges in this case were anything between any, any edge between two different cover types or even timber tracks. So a uh, skitter path could have been an edge dividing a young age pine stand and an old pine stand or could have been a hardwood drainage little creek drainage and then meeting up with a clear cut that could have been an edge too so in in ultimately the more edge potentially increased font survival indirectly okay well it's two things that uh that we promote within habitat a lot Right. The NDA is is edge and early successional habitat. So there you go. The the edge and then providing those blackberries to distract the coyotes and uh, yeah, just uh, you you may be able to I guess help improve those those fawn recruitment rates, offset some of that predation. So I guess for those who may want to kind of keep up with you guys are doing as far as the the deer and coyote research, is there uh, is there a place for them to do that online? Yeah, I mean I was just say I think. We're definitely interested in in like uh, putting together a kind of a, a digestible kind of summary of all this, um, of course. And people can find our emails probably pretty easily on you know online. They're welcome to email us with that. But yeah, we're we're really hoping that to kind of condense all this down for folks uh, over the next few months and and have something for for you know you know land managers um, that kind of some some key take home points. So um, I would say kind of be on the lookout for that. But yeah, go ahead, Mike, if you have anything to add. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, you can uh, reach out to us via email. Um, but also, yeah, like Alex said, we're hoping to, you know, publish these in scientific journals. But also, as he mentioned, kind of condense it down, key takeaways and recommendations, but also recommendations for future research. So we've shed light on a lot of different factors that could help managers achieve their population goals, for example, but 
but they do need further testing. You know, all, all these factors need, need more experiments and, uh, and more field studies to really, really flesh this out and see are, you know, ultimately, are there ways we can live with coyotes and have the deer populations that we want and, you know, continue hunting, for example? Yeah, it, it, I'm. I'm afraid we're going to have to learn to live with them. I think they're. <laughs> I think they're firmly embedded in uh, in this mm-hmm. part of the country now. So yeah, it's just a matter of figuring out what we can do, um, you know, to the habitat and and other ways we can kind of offset what they're doing. So it's it's good and, stuff. And one thing to add, you know, given it's turkey season, people always ask me, well, what about turkeys, you know, and coyotes? Um, and you know, we found very few bird feathers in, in coyote scats to begin with. And that kind of aligns with a, there's a statewide coyote diet study going out from university of Georgia, um, just finishing up too. And they found kind of similar things. So, you know, that doesn't really seem to be, doesn't, doesn't seem to be direct impacts um, on turkeys from coyotes from, from kind of that, that perspective. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good to know. Yeah. I think the coyote is just kind of an easy target to, to blame yeah. for, for everything that's going wrong with any kind of wildlife population, but good to know. But guys, I, I appreciate it, man. Appreciate your time and uh, definitely enjoyed the conversation and thanks. Thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Brian. Really appreciate it. Yeah. It was a pleasure, Brian. Thanks. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Mike Muthersbaugh and Alex Jensen. Uh, Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, Hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the the podcasting charts and be more visible to, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Hey, you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement. Um, deer management, you name it. Uh, If it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.